History is a concept, stories of events shaped by human minds and then communicated and comprehended, often imperfectly. So no surprise that we sometimes get it quite wrong indeed. This could come from outright fabrications or simple misunderstandings, but we often base our actions on what we think happened in the past, so it might be worth clarifying the record from time to time. In this new subseries of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, we'll look at some common misconceptions and, quote, facts that, quote, everyone, quote, knows that are, in fact, not what we think they are. This time, we jump in the Wayback Machine for a look at things people think they know about the ancient world. And so, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I'll give them back, I promise. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. where the heart is. It can be argued that the foundation of the modern Western world comes from ancient Rome. Let's examine some common ideas about the civilization that supposedly was founded in 753 BCE in the wake of the Trojan War, became a kingdom, then that was changed to a republic in 509 BCE, became a dictatorship in 49 BCE, remained a polytheistic empire until 323 CE, then Christianity became the official religion, it divided into two empires in 395, the eastern one of which the Byzantine Empire continued until conquered by the Turks in 1453, while the Western one collapsed in 476. Eventually, the Holy Roman Empire showed up around 900 CE, sort of kind of based on all this, and that lasted until 1806 when Francis II abdicated, moving aside for Napoleon Bonaparte and the Habsburgs. Whew! That is quite a story indeed, spanning well more than 2,000 years. But when we talk about ancient Rome, we imagine gladiators and togas and laurel wreaths and orgies and ritual suicide and so on. But how much of what we think we know is actually true? Contrary to jokes in Monty Python's Life of Brian, the Romans did not invent roads or viticulture or sewers or aqueducts. These were innovations they found elsewhere, imported and improved. They did, however, invent concrete, the Roman arch, the hypocost system, which is a centralized underfloor heating system, and the Julian calendar, which would later be adapted to the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar everybody in the West uses today. They also invented surgical instruments that would be very familiar to people today, the very first bound book, precursors to the modern postal system, a welfare system for the poor, key legal elements that would form the basis of modern jurisprudence, the first real serious fire brigade, and a precursor to the daily newspaper. 
Many statues in ancient Rome were painted quite colorfully. They even sometimes had pupils painted on the eyes and flesh-colored skin. This is probably also true for ancient Greece and other older cultures as well. Over time, the pigment wore away, and now they are monochromatic. But back in the day, they weren't. In fact, the whole city of Rome was painted in a riot of colors until it too dulled over time. Ask any Greek and they'll tell you the Romans just copied the Greek gods and just renamed them. Like so many things, kind of true and kind of not true. Most of the Roman pantheon already existed when they encountered the Greeks and over time aspects of the Greek gods got married to the ones that the Romans worshipped. For example, the Romans already had Jupiter, a distant deity that controlled the weather. By the 3rd century BCE, he'd become a kind of a hybrid of his former self and the Greek Zeus. Then Greek tales about Zeus were sometimes retold in slightly altered fashion as being about Jupiter. But the Roman gods had always been more impersonal than the Greek ones, even without the cultural appropriation. The Greek gods were seen as kind of more human. Probably no article of clothing has more specific associations with Rome than the toga. However, you could only wear one if you were a Roman citizen, and while Virgil refers to the Romans as, quote, the race that wears the toga in the Aeneid, they did not, in fact, wear them all the time. And when they did, they were seldom naked underneath, wearing at least a tunic under the robe, if not more. Women were actually forbidden from wearing them at all in the 2nd century BCE, unless they were a prostitute, and by the time the Republic collapsed under the weight of Caesar's ambitions, togas were used only as a formal garment kind of like how today men might wear a tuxedo. Many men, in fact, didn't use or even own a toga. They were expensive, and for the vast majority of Romans, the only time they'd ever wear one would be at their own funeral, as a corpse. By the 4th century CE, almost no one wore togas at all since the fashion had moved on, and now people favored a sort of a hooded cloak called a panula as the vestment of choice. It has been said that there have been more orgies in Hollywood films about ancient Rome than there were in actual ancient Rome. Many historians believe this notion of pagan Roman religious ceremonies and social gatherings being dirty, dirty, filth, filth was propaganda created by Christian writers and theologians in the Middle Ages to paint the empire as having been decadent and sinful until Christianity came along to clean up their act and save their souls. So no, they were not getting it on every time somebody sneezed. However, they were not prudes, at least in the privacy of their own homes. It was not uncommon for a married man to have sexual congress with a slave or two, but that was behind closed doors. Public displays of affection in most of ancient Rome's history were a big no-no. There's an account of a senator who'd been away for a number of years and was so excited to see his wife when he returned that he kissed her on the steps of the Senate. His colleagues were so shocked, they expelled him from the Senate and stripped him of his title. The gesture that would become the Nazi salute, one arm raised out in front of you, probably did not actually come from the ancient Romans. Benito Mussolini is the one who spread that notion around. After all, the name for his political movement came from the fasces, which was a bundle of sticks used as a symbol of authority that the Romans had adapted from the Etruscans whom they conquered. Mussolini probably got this idea in his head from one of the many paintings inspired by a 1784 work by the Frenchman Jacques-Louis David, The Oath of Horati, which shows three Romans taking an oath with their arms outstretched at a 45-degree angle. 
This was a popular painting, and other artists soon copied that pose, and then Il Duce adapted it for his fascists, and then Hitler used a variation of that, and voila, it turns out the Nazi salute comes from a modern Italian's bad understanding of history based on a painting by an 18th century French guy. Vomitoriums were special rooms used for overindulgers at a feast, so we think. Well, also not true. There were no such places, though inducing a heave-up so as to eat more food was something that people did sometimes, but they did not have special rooms for this. All of this comes from seeing the word vomitorium on building plans. A vomitorium is actually a passageway, usually under the seats in an amphitheater, that lets lots of people exit quickly. It's also a word used for a passageway that allows actors and other performers to enter and exit the stage. The word comes from the Latin word vomo, which means to spew forth, and yes, that is also the root of the English word vomit, but we're dealing with two different kinds of spewing here. Another case is someone seeing a word, concocting a folk etymology of it, and then spinning this ridiculous tale that the Romans had special throw-up rooms for gluttons. Are you, Are not, you not entertained? entertained? The Colosseum was actually called the Flavian Amphitheater, and in Imperial Rome, most people simply called it the Emperor's Amphitheater, no matter who was on the throne. In fact, when it was first built in 80 CE under Titus, it was just called the Amphitheater. The term Colosseum probably came around in the 6th century CE, well after the Roman Empire had collapsed, inspired by a huge statue of Nero as the god of the sun that was placed near it by the Emperor Hadrian, which in turn brought to mind the famed Colossus of Rhodes. Whatever you want to call it, this is where, as we all know, enslaved gladiators fought to the death in blood sport to amuse and entertain the upper crust, and when the emperor gave the thumbs-down signal, a defeated foe would be killed. Right? It's thought that the gladiatorial bouts started off in the 3rd century BCE as part of funereal ceremonies during the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. Jewish 1st century BCE historian Nicholas of Damascus thought they were actually an adaptation of older Etruscan rites. His contemporary Titus Livius thought he'd trace them all the way back to 310 BCE, originating with the Campanian people of south-central Italy to mark their victories over the Samnumian people further to the south. Campania was certainly where the first gladiator schools were founded. In the 7th century CE, Spanish scholar Isidora of Seville said he thought the root for the word Ianista, who was sort of the overseer and manager of the gladiators, came from an older Etruscan word that meant executioner. This idea took hold, that they'd started as a sort of a grim reminder of death being an ever-present possibility, and then other Roman historians thought that the notion of fresh blood was somehow purifying, and that maybe this whole thing could have eventually morphed into a kind of a ritualized human sacrifice to the gods. But the fact is, nobody really knows, and whatever the origins, the gladiatorial games became politicized with various officials and nobles sponsoring bigger and better contests in order to win popularity with the common folk. Gladiators were graded into categories based on skill level and specialization, some using sword and shield, some using two swords, no shield, others on horseback, others riding chariots, and one type that just used a trident and a net. The rarest category of all were those that fought against animals. Some emperors actually fought in the ring, notably Hadrian and Caligula, but this was almost always for show with either wooden swords or very, very dull blades. The Emperor Commodus, who was crazy, liked to show off to the public by lobbing spears at panthers and bears, all from the safety of a platform above the ground. Some contests were simple, mono e mono, while others became quite lavish indeed. 
There are even accounts of a whole amphitheater being flooded and ships dragged in to reenact famous sea battles. Over time, pretty strict rules were developed, and when one opponent was seriously injured, the contest was halted. If the fight went on too long and spectators started getting bored, the contest was deemed a draw, and both participants left the field with honor, having fulfilled their duty to put on a good show. So the fight to the death was not very common. Fighters were trained in how to wound but not kill. Plus, they lived and trained together and became friends, and frankly, they didn't want to kill each other. In fact, some gladiators banded together into trade unions called collegia, which is where the word college comes from. These made sure that a fallen member got a decent burial, and any family they left behind got some sort of financial recompense. They were memorialized with plaques and also in tales and song. But they were slaves and had no choice, we think. Eh, again, not really. Yeah, there were some slaves, especially in the early days, and other gladiators were convicts who committed serious crimes, the idea being that this was a way for them to atone for their misdeeds. But most gladiators throughout the history of the sport actually volunteered for the job. There was fame and money to be had, after all, and if you were a good fighter and didn't want to be a soldier, this was a pretty desirable career. In fact, many former military people were sought after by sponsors. It was not uncommon for a really good gladiator to become a celebrity, and there was a brisk trade in gladiator sweat, which some people thought was an aphrodisiac. It was put into makeup like face creams. Some gladiators were women, either female slaves forced to share the fate of their male masters or free citizens who just liked to scrap. Certainly by the first century CE, it was not unusual at all to see female combatants. They may have been taken less seriously than the boys, however. One emperor thought them silly and often staged fights between women and dwarves. Finally, the Emperor Septimus Severus banned women from the ring altogether somewhere around 200 CE. Plus, you have to keep in mind, gladiators were expensive to maintain. They ate a lot of fresh food, they had nice accommodations, the best equipment and training. Dropping all that time and money on someone just to have them killed wouldn't have made much financial sense. Having said all this, the fights were pretty serious, and even though they did try to avoid killing each other most of the time, well, things happen when swords are flashing around. The average gladiator didn't live to see 30, and somewhere between 10 and 20% of fights ended with at least one death. It's thought that most fighters got about 10 bouts before dying, though there is one account of a guy who had 150 fights and then retired. It's thought that at the Empire's greatest extent, around 8,000 people died each year in the 400 or so amphitheaters scattered about the Empire. Though some of these were straightforward executions and others were accidents. Those weren't all gladiatorial contests. Sometimes the fate of a defeated foe was left up to the public or the sponsor of the bout, called the editor, interestingly enough. A gladiator who was badly hurt or who had signaled surrender by throwing down his weapons might have to face the music, and it was often the spectators, or sometimes the emperor if it was in Rome, who got to make the call. A referee would make the final determination as to the fate of the vanquished, but usually did whatever the crowd or the emperor told him to. The signal from the crowd was usually shouting, Release him! accompanied by waving a handkerchief, or Finish him off! accompanied by a Polici Verso, which is a vague term that literally means turned thumb. Hollywood filmmakers have assumed that that meant thumbs down because by the time the 20s and 30s come around, thumbs down means bad in our culture. But now many historians think it may in fact have been a thumbs up gesture, as in, yeah, kill him. 
The thumbs down gesture is thought by many historians to have been another way to signal spare him, as was what we might now call the peace sign, a closed hand with the index and middle fingers flashing a V. The idea of thumbs down meaning death comes from painters in the 18th and 19th centuries. Damn those painters. It's thought that they took the following quote from the 2nd century CE Roman poet Juvenal as their inspiration. Now they give shows of their own. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and the killers spare or slay, and then go back to concessions for private privies. In English, that would seem to indicate that the first thing of the first pair, thumbs up, correlates with the first thing of the second pair, spare, and the second with the second, meaning thumbs down correlates with slay. But English is a fairly structured West Germanic language, and Latin does not necessarily follow those same rules. Lend me your ears! Now let's look at some ideas about the famous Roman dictator Gaius Julius Caesar. Yes, his first name was Gaius. Roman names are a big complicated topic, but essentially in modern English, his name would have been closer to Gaius Caesar of the Juliuses. He was of the Gens Julia family who claimed lineage all the way back to a guy they called Julius, which they said was another name for Ascanius, who is the son of the legendary warrior Aeneas from the Battle of Troy. And Aeneas was the son of a member of the Trojan royal family and the goddess Venus. As is typical of the time for noble families to make some kind of claim to divine origin. Anyway, the Julius bit of Caesar's name is actually his family name. During his lifetime, he often called himself Gaius Caesar, dropping the Julius altogether. Caesar was never actually an emperor. He was a successful general who did not want to resign his post once the Gallic Wars had ended, so he crossed the Rubicon River in defiance of the Senate and marched on the city. This kicked off a civil war, which his side won. Because of the war, normal government was suspended, being led by an emergency leader, and then he just kind of slid into that role and never left it. He declared he was dictator for life, but he was not an emperor. He consolidated power, and after he died, he was officially made a god by his grandnephew and adopted son, Augustus, who is really the first emperor. Incidentally, Augustus's name is actually Gaius Octavius Thrinus, who was then called Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus after he was adopted, and then he just called himself Caesar for seven years when he was emperor and finally settled on Caesar Augustus. And that's where the whole idea of Caesar being a title comes from. That word Caesar as a title would later turn into the word Tsar in Russian and Kaiser in German, both of which mean emperor. Gaius Julius Caesar was not in fact born by Caesarian section. He was born in the normal way. This technique had been around in many lands for a long time, usually only after the mother had died during labor because it was almost certain to kill the woman if performed on her while alive. A C-section, or Caesarian section, does not in fact get its name from Julius or Gaius Caesar, but from the Latin word sedere, which means to cut. It was a procedure for quick and dirty surgery on a battlefield. Shakespeare was certainly one of the people who performed a bit of folk etymology and got it wrong, mentioning Caesar being cut from his mother in more than one play, but the idea stuck in the common consciousness. Speaking of Shakespeare, Julius Caesar's last words were not et tu brute, or rather, we have no idea what his last words were. 
The historian Suetonius wrote, 150 years after the stabbing party on the Senate steps, that Caesar actually said nothing at all when he went down under the knives. Other writers claim that he said the Greek phrase, kaisu technon, which means you too, child, but that seems kind of unlikely. Why would he have been speaking Greek? Shakespeare certainly came across this kaisu technon, liked it, and transformed it into etu brute. Incidentally, in the play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, etu brute is not the last thing that Caesar says. His last words are actually, then fall Caesar. And no, Gaius Julius, whoever, did not create a famous salad. The Caesar salad was the brainchild of an Italian immigrant who had restaurants in Mexico and the U.S., Caesar Cardini. Yes, he named it after himself. It was invented on July 4, 1924, when he had an unexpected rush at the Hotel Caesar in Tijuana, and the kitchen ran low on product. So he threw a bunch of what was left together into a bowl, decided to toss it table side for hungry patrons to give them something of a show, and a big hit was born, becoming probably the most famous salad in the world. Some kitchen staff from the restaurant claimed that actually it was their idea, and the big boss man just took credit. Originally, the Caesar salad did not have anchovies, but a bit of Worcester sauce, which has anchovy as one of its ingredients. Cardini's brother, Alex, had created an aviator salad that did have anchovies, and since they both have the same last name, over time, American chefs confused the two, and anchovies from the aviator salad got stuck on to the Caesar salad. Also, while lemon juice is often squeezed on a Caesar salad today, the original used fresh limes. This is another language issue. Lime in Spanish is limón, which looks and sounds like lemon, and those silly Americans just don't know the difference. Freakazoid! Caesar was not an emperor, and Augustus was the first emperor. The third emperor, Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, also known as Caligula, a nickname that meant little boot and one that he hated, made his horse a consul in the Senate, so we all think. Well, probably not. During his almost four-year reign, Caligula would deep dive into excess, sadism, and debauchery. He executed people without letting their trials finish. He sent soldiers on bizarre training missions. He had incest with his sisters and also his brother-in-law. He slept with his allies and friends' wives. He made senators run in front of his chariot while he went as fast as he could. He liked to show off his wife naked to other people. He turned the palace into an actual brothel, and he kept saying that he was going to make his beloved horse a console. But he almost certainly never did. A lot of this comes from the historians Lucius Cassius Dio and Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, but just how true all of this is is open to debate. Whenever there was bad government in Rome, it was commonplace to accuse the rulers of sexual debauchery and or insanity. However, modern historians do think that the rumor that Caligula forbade everyone from talking about goats in his presence is probably true. At least some of the incest tales are probably true. And that while he never actually made his horse a member of government, he did have the animal ordained as a priest as sort of a commentary on what he thought of priests. He also had a real thing about horses, lavishing attention on his own and poisoning the horses of his enemies. In short, Caligula was a nut 
and after several conspiracies to get rid of him failed, one finally succeeded. This had probably kicked off when Caligula said he intended to move the capital of the empire from Rome to Alexandria in Egypt, where he would finally be revered as a living god, he declared his own divinity a few years earlier. It has been noted that his death eerily paralleled that of Julius Caesar. Both were stabbed 30 times, and both plots were led by a man named Cassius. Hmm. Caligula's Germanic guard freaked out upon hearing of the emperor's death and went on a rampage in which they killed anyone who came across their path, conspirator or innocent alike. The Senate thought that in the ensuing chaos, maybe after three emperors, they could restore the Republic. However, they failed and Claudius ascended to the throne. And now, now for my, for my next, next number... number. Speaking of weirdos who were emperor, there's the old idea that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. This would refer to the Great Fire of 64 CE, which probably started in a shop near the Circus Maximus and spread throughout the city, pushed on by unusually strong winds. The fire finally got under control six days later, but then started up again and burned for another three days. When it was over, more than 60% of the city was gone. Three entire districts had been destroyed and another seven were badly damaged, including part of the Forum. But Nero didn't care about people, only his own selfishness, and he played music while the common areas burned. After all, he wasn't in danger. He was up high on a hill. So goes the tale. Except that Nero wasn't even in Rome during the fire, but in the town of Antium, which is today's Anzio, about 35 miles away to the south. He may or may not have returned to the city somewhere in the nine days of burning, but he certainly didn't indulge in practicing a musical instrument while it was happening. Nero, the fifth emperor of Rome and the last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, was a tyrant and not well-liked by many of his subjects. Plus, he had plenty of political enemies, and so rumors and conspiracy theories started cropping up almost immediately. The Flavians had their eyes on the prize and wanted to rule the empire and are almost certainly the origin of the whole fiddled-while-Rome-burned thing. Let's call it propaganda, or you can call it fake news. In either event, it was an attempt to smear Nero's name because they wanted his position, and they hated his rewriting of laws set up under Augustus, which they agreed with. Also, the fiddle, which is a stringed instrument of which the violin is a type, was not invented until the 10th century CE. Back in the days of Nero, it would have been a liar. Historians Cassius Dio and Suetonius both expanded on the story, saying that Nero had dressed up in stage costumes and sung a song called The Sack of Troy while watching the city burn. Another historian, Publius Cornelius Tacitus, wrote that while Nero was out of town at the time the fire started, he rushed back when he got word, set up shelters and food supply chains for those affected in his own palaces, and basically tried to help out. But rumors started flying almost immediately, even coming from the common quarters, that Nero had employed people to start the fire because he'd been wanting to redesign a large section of the city into a huge new palace complex for himself and had been stymied by rivals. This fire cleared a huge swath of land to enable his ambitious and rather self-serving urban renewal project. So... Some historians of the time say Nero himself, to try and deflect from these rumors, started a rumor himself that the fire had been purposely set, but by Christians. This unruly, splinter religion made up of a whole bunch of arguing groups. After all, they were weak and disorganized and a pretty easy target. Members of this relatively new faith were rounded up and crucified, burned to death, and fed to wild animals. These punishments against a group that almost certainly had nothing to do with the fire got crueler and crueler because Nero was a sadist, 
with few checks on his power. The new palace, conveniently located in the devastated area, cost so much money that Nero had to greatly increase taxes to pay for it. He also devalued the currency, creating inflation in the empire for the very first time. Now, all of this is happening in the year 64 CE. The next year, the senator Gaius Calpurnius Piso formed a conspiracy, he has a conspiracy, with a centurion and a tribune to depose Nero and bring back the republic that Caesar had shunted aside. However, they were found out by a former slave who told the emperor's secretary, and the three of them were executed along with a number of co-conspirators, including the poet Lucan and the statesman and dramatist Seneca, who was ordered to commit suicide rather than be executed as a sort of a nod to his fame. As mentioned before, Nero was not a nice man, and while some of that may have been nature, nurture also played its part. His mother, Agrippina, who was Caligula's sister, had married the fourth emperor, Claudius, with an eye to getting her son Nero in power. She convinced Claudius to adopt the boy, and then almost certainly poisoned him, and Nero ascended to the throne when he was 16. Worried that his 13-year-old stepbrother could be a challenge to him, Nero had that boy poisoned at a banquet. He started an affair with Claudia Acta, a former slave. Mother disapproved of this, so Nero went ahead and married the woman. Mother and son struggled politically, with Agrippina constantly trying to gain more influence and maybe set up a form of government in which she would be kind of a co-ruler. But Nero kept swatting her down and doing as he liked. While he was married to the former slave girl, he started an affair with a woman who was a good friend of his wife, also against his mother's wishes. Mom put her foot down, so Nero put her on a ship, which he then paid somebody to wreck. Some people say she died in the wreck. Others say that she survived, fought her way to shore, and then was murdered there on the beach by people in Nero's employ who were waiting for her. Nero then divorced Claudia and married the new girl. But a few years later, he kicked her to death when she was pregnant with his second child. Or so some say. Other people say the emperor was actually very sad about her death and he went into a long period of mourning. However, he emerged from this two years later when he met a young man named Sporus who looked an awful lot like his second wife. So Nero had the boy castrated, so he'd be kind of like a woman, and married him. Rebellions against the high taxes Nero had imposed cropped up, gaining more and more followers. Things were looking grim for the emperor, who apparently had considered offering to step down in exchange for being given control of Egypt, but he never got around to making the offer. The Senate declared him a public enemy and sent soldiers to arrest him. They intended to sentence him to death by beating. Nero got word of this and fled to a villa outside the city. On June 9th, 68 CE, as the Senate's men approached, he intended to commit suicide, but he chickened out and told his friend who was with him to commit suicide in front of him so he could see what it looked like. And then he got brave again. Then he chickened out again at the last minute and ordered his secretary to run him through with a sword. After a turbulent 13-year rule, the 30-year-old emperor died, ending the dynasty that had begun with Julius Caesar and Augustus. The next year would be filled with chaos, with four emperors coming and going in the single year, and the Vespasian family finally came out on top, and the Flavian dynasty was established. However, that would only last for three emperors, and then the circle would go round and round again for centuries. Fluid, Fluid Prejudice, prejudice. As Mark Twain once wrote, the very ink with which history is written is merely fluid prejudice. The fact is, we don't really have very good records of these ancient times, just what historians have written, and many of these historians of ancient Rome have their own agendas. Some of them were even dramatists who just couldn't resist making things seem tidier and or more dramatic than they really were. 
Later writers, both in the fiction and nonfiction realms, would take what was said before and then put their own spin on things. The general public then takes those flourishes as fact, take some of the things that Shakespeare wrote in his play Julius Caesar, for example, et tu brute and all that. While Herodotus, who wrote in the 5th century BCE, is considered the father of history, he has some pretty outlandish things in his writing. Some things seem odd, but are maybe plausible, like various funereal rites in different lands, people shaving off their eyebrows as a sign of mourning, uh, ritual eating of a corpse by a people on the eastern shore of the Caspian Sea, people in Bulgaria celebrating death as some kind of an achievement. He wrote that Egyptians love cats so much that they would rush into a burning building to save one. Okay. He also said Egyptians cured baldness with sun tanning and on and on. Some of these are maybe true. Some of them are mistaken impressions because he didn't have a context for the new things he saw. In fact, he thought the hippopotamus was just a weird kind of horse. The name hippopotamus means river horse. Some of the things Herodotus writes are clearly totally wrong, however. Like the Argopeans are born bald and never grow hair, and the only food they eat is fruit from a particular kind of tree their whole lives. He writes that there were ants the size of dogs in India. What he probably saw was a large marmot that digs in the ground to create burrows. He said Ethiopia was populated by a people who live in holes in the ground and shriek like bats. He said he'd seen cyclopses, griffins, dragons, and giants with his own eyes. That he'd met men who had no heads but faces on their torsos in Libya. It's hard to square the things he writes with the things we know to be accurate. Was he lying? That's well, impossible to say. Now, the word history in Greek means inquiry, so from its very beginning, history is asking questions. And since humans don't like not having answers, there's always pressure, both internal and external, to supply some. And let's face it, some people put less of a priority on veracity than others, often for their own game. Or they just can't even fathom the idea of an objective factual truth. Donald Trump won himself a U.S. presidency by promoting the very Orwellian idea that facts are whatever the people in power say they are, and that perception is everything. Now listen, Trump fans, before you go flooding me with angry messages, let me make it clear that I am not accusing Mr. Trump of having read Orwell's book 1984, or any book for that matter. Sometimes there are just inaccurate ideas that float down through the ages until they become quote-unquote common knowledge, except that, you know, they're wrong. These sorts of tendencies are where we get ideas like that Vikings all had horns on their helmets and they drank from the skulls of their vanquished foes. The horn helmet image actually comes from a production of Richard Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungen from 1876, and it was a decision by the costume designer. Though some Old Norse helmets have been found with brow ridges by archaeologists, it's entirely possible that most of the time, Vikings didn't wear helmets at all. The whole using skulls as cups thing was Anglo-Saxon slander in response to Viking raids in the east of England. Another wrong idea from the ancient past is that the pyramids were built entirely by slaves. Modern evidence suggests that, while there certainly were slaves used as part of the workforce, a lot of the work was guided and done by skilled craftsmen who took great pride in their work. Sometimes religion creates a context for misinterpreting history, especially when just holy writings are used as source material. That's how James Usher and others calculated the age of the earth to be only about 6,000 years. 
Sometimes certain tales are recontextualized for effect, like the biblical notion that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden for disobeying God, which is not actually what it says. They'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so God tossed them out so that they wouldn't also eat from the tree of immortality, quote, and be like us. Interestingly, the whole idea that the apple was the fruit that tempted Eve probably comes from a Latin pun. Malum means apple, and malum means evil, from the word malus. So Eve ate one, malum, and got the other, malum. This shows up in early Christian art, and while the apple certainly did originate in Central Asia, there are almost certainly no apples in the Levant or the Fertile Crescent of the time depicted in Genesis. The fruit Eve ate would probably more likely have been a fig, or a grape, or a lemon, or a pomegranate, or maybe even wheat. But the apple as we know it, certainly not. There was a flowering of historical research in Europe in the 19th century that led to all sorts of misconceptions and inaccuracies. Starting in 1863, you started seeing texts that said that the Roman general Scipio Aemilianus defeated the Carthaginian capital of Carthage during the Third Punic War and salted the earth so nothing would ever grow there again. Now, apparently, this was an occasional practice in the ancient world, but there's no evidence that Carthage was ever salted before these documents that show up in the 1870s. Somebody just decided that they must have done it, and then other people used that as source material, and a misconception is born. For a very long time, there have been tales of the famous female Greek warriors known as the Amazons, first mentioned in the 8th century BCE by the poet Homer. He calls them... Antianeri, which could mean antagonistic men or equal to men. Another name for these fighters was Amazonas, which might have come from Amazusai, which means living together, or Amazois, which means without breasts. This last possible source of their name is probably the origin of this idea that Amazonian archers cut off one breast so that it wouldn't get in the way of their bowstrings. That seems to make sense, common sense-wise, and then that interpretation stuck, but it is almost certainly not true. It's now thought that the Amazons were actually Scythians, a nomadic people from the Eurasian steppes, coming from somewhere around modern-day Kazakhstan, who had both male and female warriors in a fairly gender-equal society. So the idea that there was a whole community of just women who kicked ass and cut off a breast is probably not true at all. Of course, the further back we go, the fewer reliable records there are since they get destroyed and the longer people have had to monkey with details, either accidentally or on purpose. For example, cavemen were barely human, big, brutish dum-dums. But modern findings show Neanderthals were actually pretty caring and communal with a fairly well-developed artistic sensibility and a rather sophisticated social structure. Stonehenge was probably not built by the Druids, but seems to have been constructed somewhere between 850 and 3,000 years before the Celts even arrived in the British Isles. And by the way, the Druids probably did not practice human sacrifice. Speaking of old things, the Sphinx in Egypt is not really a Sphinx at all, some people say. These mythological creatures had a human head, a lion's body, and falcon's wings. And the great Sphinx of Giza has no wings. That's what a bunch of listicles like to say. However, Egyptian sphinxes often were pictured without wings. The Greek ones had wings. The Egyptian ones did not. This is in Egypt, so therefore, it really is a sphinx. And while we're pretty sure the Hanging Gardens of Babylon really did exist once upon a time, they were not built by Nebuchadnezzar and might not even have been in Babylon. Recent research suggests that they were actually Assyrian and located about 300 miles away from Babylon. 
The Great Library of Alexandria, probably founded in the 3rd century BCE by an old pal of Alexander the Great's, Ptolemy I Soter, housed somewhere between 40,000 and 400,000 scrolls at its height, but it was not burned by Muslims or angry anti-intellectual mobs. There are some Arabic sources that say Caliph Omar ordered the library's destruction in 642 CE, and there is a 13th century scholar that says the Caliph ordered all books not in accord with the Quran to be destroyed, but later historians feel that all of this is propaganda and should not be taken seriously. The Library of Alexandria was accidentally set on fire by troops of Julius Caesar in 48 BCE during that civil war he started by crossing the Rubicon. The library was damaged and survived, but once the Romans had control of it, it became less about scholarship and more about political gain with top positions being given to friends of those in power. Its collection shrank and other greater institutions of learning went up in other lands. By the time the Roman Emperor Aurelian reinvaded Alexandria in 272 CE during his war with Queen Zenobia, they destroyed massive sections of the city. If the library was even still around at that time, it was almost certainly finished off by then, and if not, then during the siege of Alexandria in 297 at the command of another Roman emperor. So it was the Romans who destroyed the library. As time goes on, people play a game of telephone with facts and stories, and then the tales morph even further. Take the tale of the 300, made famous recently in the highly stylized 2006 film by Zack Snyder, based on the 1998 graphic novel by Frank Miller and Lynn Varley. In this tale, 300 hardcore Spartans hold off an army of over a million Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae back in 480 BCE during the second Persian invasion of Greece. Except that it really was between 4,000 and 6,000 Spartans holding off somewhere between 100,000 to 150,000 Persians. Herodotus said it was a million Persians and 7,000 Spartans, and other historians think that actually there were only about 20,000 Persians. Now, Leonidas had a bodyguard numbering 300, but they were just one small part of the overall defending forces. And by the way, the Spartans were not the only people there. They had made alliances with other Greek polities. The movie is historically problematic. However, Zack Snyder, the director, said the film was, quote, 90% accurate, a claim he based on absolutely nothing at all, especially since he based it on a comic book. He went on to shore up his claims, saying that he'd shown it to world-class historians who just couldn't, quote, believe it's as accurate as it is. This is clearly not true, Mr. Snyder. And yet there are people who will take this rather operatic film based on a comic book as historical fact. After all, I mean, they saw it with their own eyes. They just forget that they saw it with their own eyes while sitting in a chair in a movie theater. Films are full of problems like this. I remember seeing Braveheart with a military history buff who was apoplectic at the inaccuracies in that movie. Scots did not wear belted plaids at the time. There were no blue painted picks around at that time. The Battle of Stirling is actually the Battle of Stirling Bridge since it happened at a bridge, and some of the weapons were anachronistic and so on. The movie Psycho gives us all the idea that schizophrenia means having multiple personalities, which is in fact not necessarily true, and there are many forms of schizophrenia. Why, even on the small screen, writers of historical dramas take liberties with the facts as we know them, and sometimes we didn't know that many facts to begin with. As so often with filmed entertainment, a lot of liberties are taken with the veracity of events in the service of dramatic structure. The films Gladiator and Ben-Hur, while great in their own ways, are also filled with errors and fabrications because filmmakers and studios are not making documentaries. They're making stories. 
and to confuse a fictional film with reality is a mistake. If you've ever tried to reconstruct events that happened at a dinner party where you got drunk, you know that two people seldom remember things in Concord. Now add to that many, many more people and centuries of time and various political, religious, and personal agendas, and don't forget that some people are crazy or stupid, and you have the messy morass that is history. This doesn't mean that there are no truths. It just means that we shouldn't automatically believe every single thing we hear. A little skepticism is healthy. Too much, however, and you're caught in the writhing tentacles of the conspiracy. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.